19. I'm going to reach to the end of the chapter. So Matthew 6, verse 19 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and men. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather in the barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Let's stop the prayer. Father, uh, again, we thank you that we can come together and sing praises to you, Lord, and we thank you for your word and for the time that we have to spend in it. So, Lord, I just pray that you try our hearts and our minds as we look at parts of this passage this morning. I just pray that you encourage us through this, and I pray that this time would be useful in your glory. Amen. Amen. Now, we have
automobiles were becoming common, the economy peaked in September of 1929, by which time the stock market had increased by nearly 10 times. In the 20s, investing in the stock market had become almost like a national pastime for those who could afford it, and those who couldn't afford it often borrowed to finance their investments. Unfortunately, people weren't buying stocks based on fundamentals, on the merits of the economy. They were buying in anticipation of rising share prices. And rising share prices only served to bring more people into the stock market, thinking that it was an easy way to make money. In mid-1929, there was an oversupply due to excess production in many industries, which caused industries to start to dump their products at a loss, and share prices began to falter. The stock market began to spiral downward. From its peak on September 3rd, 1929, until it reached the bottom in July 8th, 1932, there was a loss of 89.2% in the stock market. The years that followed are what we know as the Great Depression, where thousands of banks failed, nearly a fourth of the workforce lost their jobs, and there was no unemployment checks to collect at that time. And it's estimated that millions of people, they don't even know the numbers, but millions, lost their life savings in the market crash. And many more lost everything, including their homes, over the coming years during the Depression. gathering money, gathering 
First Timothy 6. Turn, I'm going to turn there as well. First Timothy chapter 6.
We have some nice houses. We have nice furniture in our houses. We have some nice motorbikes. Are those things wrong? Is it wrong for me to have a savings account and a retirement plan putting away money in savings? Well, that's not what Jesus is saying. He says, you know, as in Timothy, he says, the love of money. If that is our treasure, it's a problem in our heart. Not a problem with the stuff. The stuff isn't the problem. It's, it's the value that we place on the stuff. If that's where our heart is, then it's a problem. But the stuff in itself isn't the problem. In fact, the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to lay up for our children. 1 Corinthians 12.14 says, For the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. If you think about that, throughout the Bible, we talk, it talks about taking care of elders and taking care of the widows and taking care of our parents, honoring our parents. Uh, Jesus dealt with this issue of people were taking that verse of honoring your father and mother, which involves taking care of them financially in their old age, or physically in their old age. And the people were finding a way, there was a loophole in the law that they had created to get out of doing that. And I said, we called it Corbin, or a gift. I've dedicated this money to God, therefore I can't use it to take care of you, Mom and Dad. Sorry. <laughs> but that's the way that people dealt with these things. But the actual principle in the Bible says that the children ought not to lay up for the parents. It shouldn't be the child's job to financially sustain the parents in their old age. But the parents should be laying up for the children. There should be an inheritance left over to your children when you're gone. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaveth an inheritance to his children's children. Does that mean we skip generations? <laughs> this isn't yours, the kids, and this is your kids, your kids' inheritance? Well, that's, I don't think that's what it means. I think it means that we should be so diligent in the way that we save and the way that we handle our finances that there should be enough that my kids don't use it all up by the time they have kids and there's still something left to pass on to that next generation after them. If I'm diligent with the way I handle my finances and handle my stuff and in the way that I teach my children, then there should be something left for those future generations. And that's what the Bible is teaching, is that we should a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It should carry on. There is more than one kind of inheritance, though. It's not just the physical stuff. You can leave an inheritance um, spiritually as well. trying to find where the, the verse is. 2 Kings chapter 17, and this isn't exactly a, a good example, but it's an example that teaches the principle perfectly. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 41 says, So these nations feared the Lord. That's the nation surrounding the nation of Israel. It says they feared the Lord and served their graven images. They were afraid of God. They didn't serve God. They feared the Lord, and they served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, still do they unto this day. We have four generations serving graven images. You leave a spiritual inheritance to your children. What you do, the way you live, your children see that. The people around you see that, and they learn from that. Our children copy the things that we do. And not the things that we say that we do, but the things that we actually do. They see the real us. They see if we're truly serving God. And the Bible says in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. If we're really living that life, serving God, 
still going to remember that. They don't always stick right on that path right through, but it affects them and it sticks with them. And the principle, it's not, this isn't a promise that every time you do this, your kids are going to turn out perfect. But as a general principle, this is the way things go. And that example in 2 Kings, their fathers and their children's children, that entire line of people all served the same graven images. They all had the same spiritual life, which led them all to the same place, unfortunately, but it works for us as well. We still leave a spiritual inheritance to our children. Now, when it comes to spending money, Proverbs 22 says in verse 7, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Um, Some versions say the borrower is slave to the lender. When you borrow money, you become a slave to the person that you borrow that money from. When me and Ben got married, uh, we were teaching canoeing for a living, um, guiding canoe trips and teaching courses and things like that. I say we did it for a living. We were trying to do it for a living. Um, we did about six months of the year doing that, and then I staked over, and we tried to do other things. We worked odd jobs and did what we had to do to get by. During that time, I don't know what our annual income would have been, but it wasn't particularly high. And we had a hard time paying our bills. We couldn't get a mortgage from a bank because we were self-employed with zero income. And so Jen's parents loaned us the money to buy our first house that cost a whole $43,000 or whatever it was. Um, And we had a hard time making our bills. we were both working at the gas station around the corner from our, our place for seven something an hour. And we're still hardly making all of our bills. We had no money left over. And as time went on, um, Darren was born and we needed more income and a more stable income. And so I started looking for real work and real work. Yes, I said that. <laughs> um, more consistent work, and so I ended up working for Jen's dad as a mechanic. I don't remember what my beginning pay was, whether it was ten dollars or twelve dollars an hour. And I remember a point where, in our math, we had literally three hundred dollars left at the end of the month after our actual absolute essential expenses. We had three hundred dollars we could spend on stuff. Most of it was spent on renovation materials to fix that dump of a house that we were living in. When my pay went up from that 10 or $12 an hour to $18 an hour to $20, whatever, whatever I ended up getting paid, the math didn't change of what our physical expenses were, but our bank account didn't change either, right? There was no savings happening. As we earned more money, we spent more money. And as we earned more money and was at a stable job, now I qualify that I can borrow money from the bank. And so we got ourselves a line of credit. And so now not only were we not saving, we were actually going backwards because now we could borrow money to buy the things that we wanted. And so we went into debt. And we kept paying that debt. And we made, we were very careful in the way that we paid that debt getting a little wet. (laughs) But every time that debt got paid close to getting paid off, there's the next tractor or the next horse or the next whatever the thing was, siding on the house or whatever, or a garage or a shed or we'd spend the next pile of money and go back into debt that much further. I remember when we first got married, just before we got married, I had bought a brand new car, 1997 Cavalier, Chevy Cavalier. And 
was paying payments on that thing for five years at about $500 a month. I remember a period of time where I couldn't drive the car because I couldn't afford the insurance on the car, but I still had to make payments on the thing. I couldn't even sell the car because I owed more money on the car than what the car was worth. I was a slave to the lender. I was working to pay for a car that I couldn't drive because I couldn't afford the insurance. I was a slave to the lender. Most of my income over these years has gone into paying for things that I don't even know what those things are. I don't remember where that money went. The horse died, the trailer's rotten, and, and all this stuff is, we moved to the next house and all the fencing and all the farm equipment got left behind. It's gone. There's, I have nothing to show for most of that money that we spent. And yet, I slaved away. I worked and worked and worked to pay those bills. And got nothing to show for it. So we finally have smartened up and realized that we are slaves to the lender when we borrow like this. And so we're like, okay, we're done with the borrowing. We're done with buying things that we actually can't afford. And we'd like to leave an inheritance to our kids. And so we paid off our debt and we're getting our house paid off and we're starting to put some money aside to actually save something to leave something for our kids. Now, is it wrong? Obviously not. To have money to left to, for your kids. Is it wrong to have money saved for your retirement? Like the guy in Luke 12, the rich man, says, he's say, I've saved up. I can take it easy because I've got all this wealth now. Well, it wasn't wrong that he had prepared for his retirement years so that his kids wouldn't have to take care of him. What was wrong with his attitude was that he felt self-sufficient. He didn't need God. He didn't need anybody. He didn't want anybody. He just loved his stuff. And he didn't get to keep that stuff because God took his life before he got his opportunity. So we have to just be careful of the way that we think of these things, it's not the stuff that's the problem, it's not the savings that's the problem, it's, is that our treasure? If I lose that, yes, it hurts no matter what, it, you know, our, our work that we put into savings, but is that your treasure? Are you devastated? Are you hanging on to that so tightly? You're listening to a guy named Dave Ramsey that teaches financial Principles. Um, he's a Christian guy. We questioned that for a while, but we listened to his testimony last night, and um, I've rarely heard as good a testimony giving as good a gospel message as what he gave in his testimony. But he says, if your stuff, if your money is your treasure, the only thing that you can gain for your wealth is the fear of losing it. You don't gain from financial wealth. Remember that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Everything that we have, everything that we see, belongs to God already. What we have, what we think, we're, when we give, we feel like we're being generous to God. It's God's. It's already His. We're not being generous to him. <laughs> he doesn't need our money. It's not our money. It's his money. There's another verse. Which I've lost track of. Proverbs 13 says, that's the wrong verse. Psalm 37, verse 21. It says, The wicked borroweth, and payeth not again. But the righteous showeth mercy, and giveth. The righteous shows mercy, and gives. If you don't have any abundance, how are you going to give? If you're in debt, if you're a slave to the lender, how generous can you give to people that are in need? We need to remember that what we 
have that financial security so that we can give to others generously. We need to remember, I think I gave this verse a couple weeks ago, 1 Timothy 5 eight says, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own host, he has the eyes of faith and is worse than an infidel. We're supposed to provide for our own. We're supposed to work and have enough for our own family. The song, the Proverbs 31 woman, it describes her, she's busy making stuff, selling stuff, buying real estate, developing land so that her family can eat and have wealth. These aren't bad things, and we're supposed to work like that and acquire these things. But we're supposed to remember that it's not ours. It's God's, and we're supposed to use it accordingly. Our treasure shouldn't be what we have physically, although we are supposed to have and do our work diligently so that we can have to give to others, so that we can live the, the life that Jesus describes us as being generous, taking care of those in need. We look at um, Isaiah 58 and Zechariah 7 last week, where it describes being generous to the poor, taking care of the needy. We can't do that if we're not taking care of ourselves first, if we don't have enough to supply for our own family. Make sure your treasure is in the right place. Let's pray. Father, just to thank you for this time and uh, for the lessons that the Bible has on our planet. So we pray that you help us to have the right attitude in these things. So pray for your blessing on all of us and our thoughts and our attitudes towards our treasure. Pray that you will be our treasure. <laughs> Worst ways to die. <laughs> yeah, just bring the bench closer. Is that good? Yeah, you won't need that then. No. Just put it in. The joys of doing outside services. <laughs> So, as we move to observe our, our communion service this morning, um, this is a very different kind of communion service than anything that we've ever experienced before. And trying to, to decide how to do this, um, or whether even to attempt to do this, was, was a topic of discussion for a while. Um, a lot of thought goes into what is appropriate to do for communion service. And so as we discussed it and I asked various people's opinions and thoughts, um, the question of bringing your own bread and wine, if, as we describe it, um, the question was, is, does that result in the same communi communion refers to community, right? And are we sharing in that bread and wine if we each bring our own? But as was mentioned to me and brought up the point, just what we do as our communion service, having somebody in the back room break a bunch of crackers onto a plate and pour some grape juice into a bunch of miniature cups, is there something sacred about that process? There's not. The source of the bread and the source of the, the grape juice and how it's contained and delivered really isn't the point, is it? 
The point is what those two things represent. And so the, the result of, of all this discussion and thought is that really the point is we are a community in Christ and only in Christ. Through his sacrifice on the cross, his body and his shed blood are the reasons that we are a community. And that's what we're remembering when we're doing this. And so as we take part in this, um, the point is to remember the source of our community, which, which is the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if everybody has their bread of some sort, if you don't, there's some in here. passing it around <laughs> and I should in fact I almost think it's probably more appropriate that each of us as we take that if it's a cracker or a piece of bread, whatever it is that you've brought, you've experienced or you're about to experience the breaking of that. And we often, we always read in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul's describing this to the Corinthian church, it says, the same night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This dude remembers of me. When we break that bread, we're remembering what Jesus went through, having his body beaten and destroyed and nailed to that cross in payment for our sins. This picture of us physically breaking this bread taking part in that breaking process. It's your sin, my sin, that caused Jesus' body to get broken like that. Let's remember that as we take this remembrance of him. the cup a little different in this situation if you've got a juice box you're passing around or whatever it is that you're doing maybe doesn't have the same physical picture but we need to remember that the the Bible describes the grape juice or the wine as the blood of a grape. And that's why grape juice is an important picture here. Um, it's the shedding of blood. We can't use our hot chocolate or our coffee to represent Jesus' blood. It does not have the same representation and meaning behind it when we do that. And so, as we take I don't know what each person brought, but your grape juice as your wine, which is representing the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood that was shed, and the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We can't have forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. That's the picture of all the Old Testament sacrifices, the lambs that were killed. It was the, the blood 
that was paying for our sin. And it was Jesus' blood that paid for our sin. So let's drink in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we just remember what Jesus did on our behalf, Lord. We take these things very seriously, realizing that it was our sin that put him on the cross, that held him there, and that he, his blood was shed to pay for our sin. And so we thank you for that, Lord. And as we remember that as we take part in this memorial service, um, just pray that that would be dear to our hearts and that we would be grateful for that sacrifice that Jesus gave on our behalf. So we thank you again for that and just pray that you would be glorified in our attempts to honor you through this time. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll get Royden and Emily to come back and we'll sing another hymn. Thank you, Clayton. Take your hymn books, please, and turn to 127. 127. Thou didst leave thy throne. Just want to thank Clayton. It's been a bit of a challenge, I would say, over the last couple of months, <laughs> trying to decide what to do and put together a sermon, and I really appreciated uh, his encouragement in... Uh, pursuing the uh, communion service this morning. It was, it was long overdue, in my opinion. I really missed that. Thanks, Clayton. Jesus. 
again for this day you've given us. We thank you for this time we can spend together. Thank you for the ring as well, Lord. Go with us, Lord, we pray. Until we meet again in your name. shake it up a little bit so everybody remembers what it's all about. I think that works good. That's great. <laughs>